You can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 7, and uh, that's where we'll be in Scripture today. I hope you'll follow along in the text and uh, a disclaimer today that um, this is, uh, the text is kind of sensitive to married situations, some singles that like we're going to talk about. I'm not going to unpack every single thing in detail because I think parts of this are so evident to you, you'll get it. And I'm going to talk about some generalities that go along with some of the uh, truths that the passage is, is going to communicate to us about marriage. I stole the title from a guy named Robert Anderson. I'm going to quote him in the message, but he talked about, uh, you know, people are always talking about having grounds for divorce. He says, what we really need are grounds for marriage. And I think in this passage, we'll see that the Bible outlines, you know, what are the grounds for marriage. First uh, Corinthians 7, beginning with verse number 1, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it, uh, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Notice something about that, because um, he, when you see the colon, you see that colon, nevertheless, because, uh, go back one now, here you go. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, colon, then he's given what they wrote to him about. So it would be in, uh, per, not parentheses, quotations in the um, text, if that was the way, and maybe it is in your Bible, but that's certainly what he's doing. He is saying, you wrote to me about this question. Is it good for a man not to touch a woman? And essentially what he's saying, are we better off not getting married? Because of the, if you've been paying attention for weeks in Corinth, we've touched on the idea that in their culture, it was sex-saturated, and they are disciples. They want to please God. They want to know, God, what, how can I live this life as a whole human being created with these impulses and urges in a way that is consistent with your plan? That's the question behind this. And so in that first verse, that's what you're seeing, is him answering a question that they had written to him about. Verse 2, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. For I say this as a concession, not as a commandment, and he's segue and transitioning. For I wish that all men were even as I, uh, my, as e- all men were even as I myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. I am that is single. That's what he's implying. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, why does he say that? Here's why. Don't be confused. Jesus spoke specifically and plainly to some things. And one of the things that he spoke specifically to is what he had just said about the nature of the marriage covenant and its commitment. 
But what he's saying now is we're venturing onto terrain about which Jesus really didn't say anything. However, we know as we read the Bible that Paul is speaking as it turned out now thousands of years later under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit himself. But what he's saying is when Jesus was on earth, he did not directly speak to the thing I'm about to say to you. So he says, but to the rest, I not the Lord say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he's willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Let's pray. God, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the way that it speaks clearly, consistently, and over spans of time with the same truth that comes from your revelation of you. And we pray that you'll speak to us from it and uh, clear our minds. Help us to listen. Help us to be intent. And we pray that we'll be receptive so that we can conform our lives in obedience to you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. When you read this uh, letter that we've been reading and preaching through in 1 Corinthians, it's called an epistle. And uh, most of you probably know that from your church experience. But this is uh, a letter that has been getting, given that sometimes they refer to uh, they being like people who study theology as a situational letter. The reason it is called that is because of passages like this where they've asked a specific question that he's answering and he's giving them God's perspective. So First uh, Corinthians is a situational letter. It has a particular context. Uh, and it's based on concerns these people had. Remember that they have been saved, they've been brought to Jesus in a particular setting, not that different than ours, where, uh, like one of the things we've talked about before now, is that Corinth had a reputation for being sensually fixated. And the world's just like that now, sensually fixated, so that the emphasis is on appearance and immodesty and uh, the standard. Their, their question is, uh, should we abstain? Should we practice abstinence as an aspect of discipleship? But not many people ask that question now. You know, that's not really the issue. But in, in their culture around them, there were forces that acted on their discipleship path to sort of steer them off of it. And so they're asking these questions that they need answers to. And as we've said before, one of the things I noticed about being a, a follower of Jesus is I had to unlearn some things and relearn things. Kind of still am all the time. Unlearning unhealthy ways, thoughts and processes and relearning things that are better, that if I put them in, in the right place and then act them out in relationship, my life hits that groove that God wants. He wants your life to follow a certain pathway. 
and a disciple is a learner. That's what the word means. I've shared these ideas at times before. But sometimes we hear the word disciple and we're, we don't, we're not sure what it means. The word disciple means a learner, a follower. Someone who is taking principles of scripture, internalizing them into themselves and practicing, practicing those things in their life. That's a disciple. So to become one, we say yes to Jesus. We say, yes, I will follow you. We surrender. We've said that before. The beginning of this pathway is surrender, repentance, and faith. We recognize that because what the Bible says is wrong with everybody is that our sin separates us from God who is holy. And, and, And everybody has the same problem. You don't know anybody that doesn't have this problem, including you. You know, our sin alienates us from God. And the, and the Bible says that because God loved us so much, he, he didn't abandon us to our failure. He came to us and he died on a cross for us. The sinless person, listen, this is Christianity. The sinless person took the place of the sinful people. The, sinful per, the sinless person died on a cross and the Bible says God judged in him all of the sins of everybody for all time so that all we have to do is to respond to him in faith and say, yes, save me. Our, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we cry out to him in our desperation and our need and we ask him to save us and guess what he does? He he saves us because anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, the Bible does not say might be or could be, says will be saved. So we cry out to him and he rescues us and he he begins to put our life into a different uh, pathway. And so that's what I, I was saying earlier. You know, when I came to faith in Christ, 24 year old young man, not too long before Frankie and I got married. And we start out in church. You know, our, our life was grounded in worship and witness. And we were uh, trying to follow Jesus. And we were trying to put off that old identity and put on a new identity. And that's discipleship. And uh, they ask questions of Paul, and he answers their questions. And one thing I was thinking about in preparing is that being willing to ask questions is a healthy posture for people. It took me a long time to be willing to admit I don't know everything. There's lots of things I do not know. And I think if you can start doing this, the earlier you can do this in your life, the better off you will be. That is to, to be able to acknowledge I don't know everything. There are other people out there who have lived longer than me and maybe they've lived better than me. And if I can listen to people like that, my life can be helped. But if I'm stubborn, you know, if I always think I have the answers, then there's no hope for me. The only hope for any of us is to be humble, to be open, to say, I, I just haven't lived through this yet. I don't know. I'm inexperienced in that respect. So they ask questions, and then he, the Apostle Paul answers them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so this question that's been extended Shows us again, we've got to keep putting off the baggage that belongs to the culture and not to Christ. And so the question is, is it good then for a man not to touch a woman or have a wife? That's the question in the passage. In answering it, the Bible provides helpful ideas about 
uh, marriage and singleness. Marriage and singleness. So we're going to see that in this, in this uh, message today. Here's a caution to you. This passage does not answer every issue that the Bible raises about marriage. Some of them are touched on, but not all of them, and that will be clear. So it, the text will challenge you and me to live out God's will for our life in our marriage or in our singleness. So nobody's left out. In our marriage or in our singleness. So here's the first idea in the passage we can see is that marriage is an anchor against excess. That was their problem, excess. That they indulged in unhealthy ways so that their life around this issue of intimacy was out of bounds. All around them were problems that related to intimacy in relationships. And so they have to know, what, what does God want for me? How should I live so that God is honored in my relationships, in my intimacy? Is it better to just to remain unmarried, they ask? Is it better just to abstain altogether from relationships that might eventually become intimate? If you're familiar with the first century culture, Particularly in Israel, there was a group there called the Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S, who practiced asceticism, which may not be a a familiar idea, but basically it was that they cloistered themselves into these very serious, severe, spiritually disciplined communities, and they practiced hardship as a way of life and self-denial as a way of life, and They said if the kingdom of God is imminent, which is a truth that has been true since Jesus was ascended up in heaven, is that we are in the kingdom of God. We live in the midst of it. And there's nothing preventing Jesus from returning at any time. He can return at any time. He may return before we finish this job over here. You know, he may. Because the Bible says that in the same manner that he ascended up into heaven, he will one day return in like manner. He's coming back. There's nothing to prevent that. We live right in the middle of the kingdom age, a time where Jesus has already ascended, and we live with an expectation and a hope, by the way, right? I hope he comes and interrupts this life. If he did it this afternoon, that would be just fine for me. It would be fine for everybody. It would be fine with me. If he came this afternoon and disrupted society and made a whole new world, made everything new. And he's going to do that. But there were people who said that his return is imminent. It could happen at any time. We're going to put off the whole idea of marriage. We're not going to get married. We're going to live this uh, life of self-denial. They, and they said, Paul, is that what we should do? And here's his answer to them in a nutshell. If it were not for the fact that there is a propensity in you to to, uh, misuse relationships or not to have the ability. Not everybody is gifted to be celibate. He says some people can live a single life of celibacy, but not everybody. So the best thing for most of you is that you need to find yourself a spouse. Find yourself a husband or find yourself a wife. And that's his answer to them. 
So this passage, when I read it, I thought if I read it alone and I didn't know anything else that the Bible said about marriage, I would come away thinking that the sole purpose of marriage is to stave off lust. That's what I'd think. That there's no other reason for marriage except for that. That's why it's important to know that the Bible does say more than that. You know, that it's an aspect because it says so right here of why we get married. It's because it gives a place that pleases and honors God for the expression of intimacy. That's what the Bible is teaching us here. But it's not the only place that the Bible speaks about marriage. In fact, it talks about marriage in Hebrews. It talks about marriage in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4 particularly. And here are some of the things that the Bible teaches about why people get married. Partly, uh, when we look at this, we know that it talks about it the way it does because of their... You remember what we said before now about these three? Context, context, and context. And the greatest of these is... Context. So their unique context is that their culture around them is working on their discipleship in an unhealthy way. And so he narrows it into this uh, conversation because of what he has been asked and given a reply to, to them. But when we think about what the Bible says in a big picture about marriage, we, we see that marriage is about partnership. It's not just to stave off lust. It's about partnership. You have a companion. You have someone in your life who you alleviate their loneliness. And they alleviate your loneliness. That's part of what marriage is. A partnership. Companionship. Someone that you're, you're able to live together with that person. And it honor the Lord. And you work out your, that, that need that we have. We do have a need for companionship. When you read the Bible, it's very clear that one of God's purposes in marriage is to multiply the human family. What did he tell those first people? He says to uh, multiply, be fruitful. Because we continue to, God gave us marriage as a way of continuing to propagate the human family. That's an aspect of this. That's a very obvious one. He gave us marriage for romance, and we, we should continue to be romantic in marriage. You know, heaven forbid that we forget all of those things that we did when we were courting that person, like Scott said. You know. We're pursuing that, that partner. Those things that we were doing when we were pursuing that person, we should continue to do after we're married to that person. We shouldn't forget that marriage is a, a place where we practice romantic love. We go on dates. Married people should go on dates. We, we should remember to, you know, to keep that healthy romance. Keep the uh, spark lit. We, and in marriage we give a living witness to a watching world of the difference that God makes. Marriage is a witness for married people. It gives witness to the world of the difference that God can make in a relationship. The Bible expresses a high view of love and marriage. When we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I love that passage, uh, that chapter in the Bible. Because it says, love is, love does. It shows us godly love. And if, if we understand what it says, it becomes the standard for our behavior in our marriage. It shows us how to relate to 
the person that God gave us in a way that nurtures them. And that's another aspect of marriage is my life is knit to the, my wife to nurture her, to nurture and to build her up and to help her faith to be meaningful. If you're married, that's part of your marriage connection is God gave you that person to nurture them, to help them to be healthy and growing. It, uh, when we read the Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it shows us the markers, you know, of how we are to bless the person that, we're, that God gave us. And so I'm looking forward to, you know, getting to that. It's beautiful. Marriage prescribes that a man would honor his wife. The man is to honor his wife. He's to nurture his wife. And the, the Bible says that he is to understand his wife. Live, live together with her, the Bible says, with understanding. You know, a lot of men would say, well, that's the task for me, you know. I mean, it's like um, because a woman is, you know, God made her and gave her the, you know, the way she is. And most men would say, that is a hard thing for me to do to understand. But it's commanded, and so my work and my marriage is to understand, to live together with her with understanding. To say, God made her this way. If I'm going to honor God, my job is to understand her. That, that requires communication, conversation, deliberate behavior, being willing to listen and, and to try to understand and learn and always continuing to grow. So, somebody said that the home is the church in miniature. The home is the church in miniature. And one of the things that that says is our lives in marriage are giving us the perfect context for working out our love for Jesus with the person who is closest to us. If we understand marriage properly, there's nobody that's in line before our spouse. Uh, God, obviously, but no human is in line before your spouse. Your spouse is the person God gave you more than anybody, more than your children, as much as you will love your children. God gave you your spouse to love first and foremost and most closely. And so that person is the person with whom you have the opportunity to flesh out your love for Jesus most closely. The Bible, when it talks about marriage, one of the things that it shows us is that godly love is in the will much more than it's in the emotions. You know, I used to think when I thought about that, it, it, you know, it's more, you know, only maybe in the will, but that's not true. It is in your emotions because we're emotional people. But I think when we, we understand godly love, it's deliberate decisions and behaviors that over and over again are going to help us to uh, fan the flame of our love for one another. It's the will. I have decided, I've committed to a certain pathway in life that goes with this person. I'm going forward with, that, with my spouse. I committed, I promised. Have you ever noticed what marriage ceremonies are like? I mean, now they have all kind of funky things, but, you know, jars of sand or... I don't know, you know, all the stuff people do. 
But part of it is a covenant, right? You pledge your vows to each other. Sometimes people write their vows, that's okay, as long as they, you know, I'd want them to match the idea of marriage in the Bible. But we stood up before witnesses. It may have been a few or it may have been many, depending on how much money you paid to get married. But, you know, when you got married, you stood in front of people and said, what? In sickness and in health, right? I, I love you. I'm committed to you in good days, on bad days. Hey, that's important because you'll have as, at least as many good days as bad days. At least as many difficult days as you have, you know, days that are like a walk in the park. So it's important that we recognize that is in my will. My will, W-I-L-L. I decided, and I'm going to stick to my word. My word is my true north in marriage. You know how people talk about, you go out and you see the pole star, the brightest star in the sky, the north sky, that, or north star that the sailors used to uh, navigate by, maybe they still do. That your promise is the pole star in your marriage because it is a recognition of what God wants. My promise is the true north for me. That, that is that, does that mean it's easy? Of course not. Have, what worthwhile thing in your life is easy? Nothing. All the worthwhile things in your life are hard. But when, you know, when we see what the Bible says to us about godly love and marriage, it, you can't do it properly without a worshiping life. That's what's underneath it all, a worshiping life. Because then I see that person the way God made them. And I, I want the things for them that God intended for them. So that's the, what's underneath it all. It's self-defeating to weaponize our closeness. Okay, that's how I'm going to say what this passage says. It's self-defeating to weaponize our closeness. I want to bless this person, not hurt them. I don't want to take intimacy and use it against them. That's the idea that Paul is trying to get across, although he says it much more plainly. Aspects of this text are very clear. The broad general sense is that worship is involved. Real love actually wants to bless the other person. The people who are one flesh reflect that in their attitudes toward each other. We're one flesh. Why would I hurt my own flesh? I'm not well if I do that, right? If I hurt my own flesh, I'm not well. So why would I hurt the person who's one flesh with me? I mean, I'm not saying we don't in marriage because we're flawed, but I'm saying when we do, we're outside of God's will. It's not what God wants. He wants us to bless the person that he gave to us. So we live together, the Bible says, as equal partners and as heirs together of the grace of God. That's Bible. 1 Peter 1, 3 and uh, chapter 3, verse 7. We're heirs together of the grace of God. With consideration, through conversation, we cultivate this life of mutual blessing. My sister Carol, in her kitchen, uh, where the sink is, actually, in her kitchen, there's a sign that says, No husband was ever shot while doing dishes. No husband was ever shot while doing dishes. 
I don't know if you could prove that that's perfectly true, but I'm guessing there's a high probability that that's right. Because marriage is about mutuality. It's not wearing the other person out for our own selfish interest. It is mutual. It's blessing each other. It's helping each other. And that's the kind of thing that we have to keep in balance. This passage is very interesting in verse number 5. It says, um, there's a word there, a uh, phrase, uh, where it says consent. You see that in verse 5, do not pro- deprive one another except with consent. That word is the word that almost literally comes into English as symphony, symphony. It's, in Greek, it's, it comes to English in that way. And, you know, it made me think, in marriage we aren't making discordant noise. You know, if you've got someone out of like if we went to the wind ensemble the musical thing um, next weekend that liberty's doing and you hear somebody that is all of their notes are wrong you know they never hit the right beat and it's like they're making a mess that's not a symphony right a symphony is when people are so practiced that everything is harmonious now i'm not saying again that that's the way life always is in marriage it's our goal is that, you know, consent. We're, we're a, so much in agreement that we know the other person and we're trying to our best to uh, bless them. And when it's not that way, we're trying to get that way. So we're not making discordant noise. And then the Bible segues here when it, you know, is, it describes, okay, some people experience life differently than this. So that's, Look at uh, the scripture here, verse number 6. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. And this is the segue, because now he's going to start talking about singleness. So marriage, secondly, is not God's plan for everyone. Marriage is not God's plan for everyone. So if a person is single, lifelong, There are people who are lifelong singles who are living out God's plan for them. That's what the Bible is saying here. For uh, the Apostle Paul, guess what he was? Single adult. He was a single adult. So he recognized that there were distinct advantages for uh, the single person. He also recognized that while this is a healthy, valuable outlook, not everyone is so gifted. Guess who else was a single adult? Only the only perfect person that ever lived. The only perfect person that ever lived was a single adult. Jesus. You already figured that out. There's a one of Rich Mullins, the a lot of you would know who he is, Christian recording artist, passed away um, back in the nineties. Last album, he was working on an album when he died, so he never recorded it apart from on demos. But um, he had a song on it written tongue-in-cheek called You Did Not Have a Home, about Jesus. Did not have a home. Part of it, he says, you did not take a wife. There were pretty maids all in a row, waiting to touch the hem of your robe. But you had no home to take them so, or had no place to take them so, you did not take a wife. That's how he put it. Tongue in cheek. Jesus never married. The only perfect person. So there are people for whom God's will is singleness as an aspect 
of their obedience to Christ. They are not less than. Paul said, I wish you all were single and that your life would be less complicated and more focused on the gospel and on the kingdom. So I wish all you people were single. <laughs> what an army, you know, for Christ we would have, I think is what he was saying. Because anybody that's married knows that there are obligations. Healthy ones that, you know, we've already seen are in God's purpose. So here's something interesting to me. We, we have to be willing to live in the tensions of Scripture. We have to be living, uh, willing to live in the paradoxes of Scripture. But here's what I, why I say that. Because the uh, same Bible that has Paul say it, I wish everybody was single like me, also says marriage is honorable among all and the bed is undefiled in, he, in the book of Hebrews. Isn't that interesting? I wish you were all single. Marriage is honorable among all and the bed is undefiled. I think it's interesting that there's this tension, this paradox, that these things are both true. And some people have been gifted with the capacity to be a happy single, perhaps all their life. I had lunch with someone recently who is a friend, who that's his life path. It's his life path. That's the way he understands life. And he's following Jesus and this is his understanding of God's call on his life. I have other uh, male friends who are single, who, who right now their life is on pause. Perhaps they'll marry at some point in the future. Perhaps they will not. However, they want to honor God right now in their singleness. And that's what the scripture is trying to show us here. Is that sometimes the... Uh, a person may be single and they are not half a person. They're still a whole person. And God wants to use that particular time in life or that posture and attitude for their whole life, for His glory. So that's how we read the, the Scripture. I know, uh, as I say, many people who are living out the, a calling like that. They see it as a holy calling that doesn't diminish their personhood at all. And it, it doesn't. They're right. It shouldn't. So that's something to keep in mind. It is entirely possible that a person may be living out God's perfect will for their life in their singleness. However, the Bible gives this caveat. If your singleness doesn't help your holiness but frustrates it, it is better to marry it says, better to marry than to burn with passion, it says. So, marriage is not God's plan for everyone. Thirdly, marriage is a covenant commitment, sacred and serious. That's what we see in this passage. Beginning in verse number 10. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. In other words, here's what he's saying. God in flesh, Jesus said this. In Matthew 19, you find where Jesus talked about marriage and divorce and was asked a question about divorce. And uh, in, in it, he said, he goes back to the Genesis account. And we've talked about this already in 1 Corinthians, where a man leaves his father and mother, clings to his wife, and the two become one flesh, the Bible says. And so he was asked there, could a man leave, uh, divorce his, his wife for any reason? 
That's what he talks about. So Jesus affirmed there what Paul is affirming here, the need to honor our marriage vows. Uh, this is the guy I mentioned in the beginning, the message title, Robert Anderson. A writer said, in every marriage more than a week old, there are grounds for divorce. He says, the trick is to find and continue to find grounds for marriage. So our commitment is our promise, as we've talked about already. I've, here's, here's what we, you know, this is complicated, and I want us to think about it. Personally, maybe you too, I've walked through some terrible things with married friends. Like a friend who I spent hour upon hour on the telephone listening to him talk about the heartbreak of being married to a serial adulteress. Someone who seemingly lacked the capacity for faithfulness in her marriage relationship. Who didn't care how deeply it hurt their teenage children. I don't know, you know precisely what that was in, in that situation. But I've known people who have broken their marriage beyond repair. And the Bible talks about that. And I, I think about that. That when we read this, we have to acknowledge that sometimes violent abuse, neglect, and adultery make it impossible for people to keep their marriage vows. The marriage has been broken. And sometimes people find themselves victimized in marriage. This is what I notice. They find themselves victimized in marriage, and it's not the church's place to victimize them again by treating divorce as an unpardonable sin. And that's what happens sometimes. Is like, I always hate this idea of uh, we're going to err on the side of this or that, people say. I'm going to err on the side of being careful. Or No, don't err on the side of stuff. Get it right. Find out what the Bible says and flesh that out. So sometimes we deal with complicated human problems. And the best thing we can do is see everything the Bible says. And actually what people need often when their marriage has been broken by infidelity or neglect or abuse is to understand God's grace is there. God's grace is there. It's not the unpardonable sin. There is a, a way for God to continue to work in, in their life. Then he talks about a separate issue. Well, here's what we should say. However, God doesn't. Uh, God is still saying the best possible scenario in every person's situation is that we honor our vows, honor our commitment to our spouse. But he moves on in this passage and he says, What's, these people are Christians in Corinth. Some of them came to faith in Christ, but their spouses did not. The husband is a Christian, the wife isn't. Wife is a Christian, husband isn't. What should we do? Should we end our marriage because our marriage is uneven, unequal? Well, he's going to talk about unequal marriages in this uh, letter as well. As I say, I have said, this um, material makes us uncomfortable at times, but in a healthy way. A way that is good for us. So he, he talks about the fact that you know some of these folks have married people who aren't believers. And so what do you do in that situation? You honor your marriage commitment. That's what he says. You don't divorce the person because they don't share your faith. Marriage is this covenant commitment that we've talked about. Our promise is meaningful. 
So we flesh out the gospel with that unsaved spouse. That's what he says. You keep living the gospel out. In 1 Peter it talks about that. Wives, it says, you live your life, you live your faith before your husband so that without you saying a word, they see your godliness. And because they see your godliness, it is the gospel to them, he says. That's the answer that, that the scripture gives in this particular situation that's being talked through. I like, uh, I always will read several translations in study. And the, Nor- uh, the New Living Translation does a great job of helping us think about what verse 14 is saying. Because it's a difficult verse. For the believing wife brings holiness, listen to what it says, the believing wife brings holiness to her marriage, and the believing husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy, but now they are holy. So this is, if you don't read this properly, you'll think, well, here's another kind of gospel in the Bible. Here's, Here's another kind of gospel. The unbelieving husband just magically makes the other people in the marriage holy. That's not what it means. What it really means is if you're married to a believer and that person is serious and faithful to Christ, the chances are their witness is going to affect and impact everybody else in the house. You know, I've seen anecdotal data, which by what I mean by that is I don't know how people confirm these kinds of statistics, but I read it all the time that basically says if the husband leads out and he, is, he follows Christ. The rest of the family is much more likely to follow. So I don't know how you do a sociological study like that. But this is what the Bible is really saying. Is if you live for Christ. And it's obvious and real. The chances are that it's going to have a, a persuasive effect on the other people in the house. It's going to affect them with godliness. But, he says here in the tragic event that an unbelieving spouse departs, the follower of Jesus is free to remarry. That's what he means when he says they're not bound. They're released. If that person abandons, departs, and won't be reconciled, the Bible says they're not bound. They're free to remarry. Verse 16 in this passage says, you never know. This is uh, trans. Uh, paraphrase but I like it I think it gives the best sense based on everything we know about the Bible verse 16 in the new King James version I've been reading from it says how do you know a wife whether you'll save your husband that's not a really clear question to me how do you know a husband whether you'll save your wife Uh, it could go either way I like how it's paraphrased in uh, the message You never know, wife, the way you handle this might bring your husband not only back to you but to God. You never know, husband, the way you handle this might bring your wife not only back to you but to God. That is a paraphrase, which means this this person has taken it and put it into uh, their own thoughts. It's not a direct translation of Scripture. However, it... uh, Given the tone of the Bible and the fact that the Bible is redemptive, I think it's a safe way to interpret what's being said here. Stick with your marriage. Keep working at it. Because the possibility is that person through the life that you lead is going to be impacted. 
so stick with it. That, I think that's exactly what it's trying to communicate to us. I had somebody tell me this week that they thought my job was more important than their job. They said, I think what you do means so much more. And I completely disagreed with that person who was in sales. Because I think the reality is all work is honorable. And you take the you that you are to the situation where you are. And you have the capacity to be a witness for Christ wherever you go. And we, if we think about that, we take our life as witnesses to all kinds of places. And a very important place that we take our life as witnesses is into our homes. We take our life as witnesses into our homes. And the home is the church in miniature where we're working through our faith and discipleship with the person, if we're married, who is most important to us, more than anybody else in in the world that's a human being. Marriage reflects God's plan in many ways, but as we've seen, so does singleness for a person, that that's God's call and his sustaining power for them is in their singleness. But whatever our condition or commitment, we need Jesus at the center of it. If it's going to work, if you're married or single, it doesn't matter. You need Jesus at the center of it. To anchor. To hold everything together. I love that verse in Hebrews that says, We have this hope as an anchor to our soul, both sure and steadfast. I was thinking about that this week, that Jesus and the hope that comes through him is the anchor to my soul. Anchor doesn't drag me down. It keeps me from drifting away. That's what Jesus does. He keeps you from drifting away. He holds you secure. Aren't you glad for that? If it depended on me, I'd drift away. But that's not how it is. I have this hope that anchors my soul. And he keeps me from drifting away. He secures me by his love. And he gives me life and forgiveness. And all life begins in him. And God is good and his purposes are redemptive. And so this, when we read a passage like this, and uh, you know, that's what we see. This is what God's trying to help us see. Is that he, he's given us the parameters of life. They're not accidental They're not things that, you know, are going to change, as we've said. They're not going to change because God doesn't change. And so he gives us these insights so that we know how to live. We know how to bless. And we know where our our hope and our security is. We're going to have a song as we conclude our service today. I'll be up front here for a few moments to help you if there is a commitment that you need to make. You know, as you've listened each week, I hope that I communicate the gospel clearly. I hope that you can hear that what the Bible says is that every single person needs Jesus to to have their sins forgiven. And that when we say yes to him, there is a spiritual reality that's occurring. And when we just cry out to God with a surrendered, humble heart, God answers us and blesses us right there in that moment. And so maybe today as you've listened, that's what's clear to you, is I'm not actually a follower of Jesus. I need to surrender to him 
and you know, I'd love to help you with that commitment or any other that you need to make. Would you stand with me? We're going to